All right, Exodus 26. The title of my sermon is A Return to Eden. A Return to Eden. Here's the big idea. God takes the initiative to dwell with his people. Amen? God takes the initiative to dwell with his people. Um, I'm going to be careful with this first illustration. I assume that many here have had loved ones in prison. And uh, I hope if they were close by, you were able to see them. That's been our case as a family over the years. Um, and then growing up. The, the thing about it, though, is when you're visiting a loved one in prison, there's layers of separation. Right? There, there's limitations. Um, there's restrictions. You can't just go whenever you want. You can't just show up and say, I'm, I'm here to see my brother or my dad. Um, there are dates, right? And, and typically it's the weekend. And when we lived in Washington State, we would uh, try to come in at least once a year, sometimes twice. And we had a loved one, a family member in prison about, I don't know, six hours away. And so we would land, and that was a part of our visit. We would go see this person. And again, there was security, there was paperwork, there was a long process. We couldn't just run in and do what we wanted. There, there were, again, things, guidelines that had to be followed. However, we knew that this one individual that we loved, that one day they would get out. We knew that. And I know that's not always the case, but in this situation we knew that all these restrictions and these limitations and the security would one day be removed and we would be able to see them face to face. And we longed for that. We did. And I think that's an apt picture of the tabernacle. Um, tabernacle's good. We see God's grace, God taking the initiative to dwell with his people. But there's restrictions, there's limitations, there's guidelines. And so I want to argue, and I think we would all agree, because we're not meeting in a tabernacle today, we're not making sacrifices, the tabernacle pointed to something greater. And that something greater has come in Jesus, who tabernacled among us. Amen? I mean, I'll get there, but the veil's been torn. We have access to the Lord now. So far, we've looked at three furnishings, pieces of furniture within the tabernacle, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, and last week, the golden lampstand. And as we've seen, I hope we've seen together, each of these items is rich in theological symbolism. These items teach us much about God, his character, even his saving purpose. So I'm not going to do this justice. If you're new today, you can go back on our website and listen to these sermons uh, again, I just can't summarize a whole sermon and do it justice in 10 seconds. But I want to just, for the sake of context, quickly address these three items and what we learned. Uh, again, this is just a summary statement. So, uh, again, what are some of the things we've looked at? Again, these three furnishings, what have we learned from them? What have they revealed to us about God, His character, His plan? Well, we started with the Ark of the Covenant because the Bible starts with the Ark of the Covenant. And that's that golden chest in the most holy place that contained the law, right, and functioned both as a footstool for God's throne and a place of atonement. And so from the Ark of the Covenant, this golden chest that housed the law, we learned that God means to rule 
over his people by his word through sacrifice. And then we looked at the table for bread. And the table for bread is not in the most holy place. It's in the holy place on the north side. And what did we learn? We learned that God means to provide for and satisfy his people. God means to make his people holy. And then last week we looked at the golden lampstand. What did we learn from the golden lampstand that is directly across from the table for bread in the holy place? God means to be a light, and God means to bring light where there is darkness. God means to bring life to his people. We talked about how this golden lampstand was made to resemble an almond tree in blossom, looking back to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. God means to show his people the way. God means to be with his people. So I've tried to be consistent, bringing four questions to the text each week. And so I want to do that again. But I want us to step back now and and look at the tabernacle and ask the same four questions of the tabernacle, this big tent that housed all these things. What is it? Number one, what is its purpose? Number two, what does the tabernacle as a whole teach us about God? Number three, and number four, how does it point to Jesus in the gospel? So the tabernacle, number one. What is it? As we've discussed already, because obviously we've mentioned the tabernacle, the tabernacle was a tent, but not just any tent. It was a portable tent. It was a tent on the move. It was a tent of meeting. And what it communicates, again, very basically, is that God means to dwell with his people in fellowship. And the fact that God chose to dwell among his people in a tent is staggering. Why? Why is that incredible? Because what are they dwelling in? The Israelite people. They're dwelling in tents. God condescends to their level. He was relating to them. It's very humbling that God would himself dwell in a tent amongst his people who are dwelling in tents. Now, the Hebrew word for tabernacle is mishkan, and it simply means living place or dwelling place. Uh, Doug Stewart, one of my professors from seminary, he wrote, The tabernacle was a fancy rectangular tent in which God symbolically lived in the presence of his people. After being built, it was set up, and this is important, it was set up in the middle of the entire Israelite encampment so that all the individual, small, simple Israelite tents surrounded the one big fancy tent of Yahweh, but in concentric circles. Now, why is that significant that God's tent is in the middle of the Israelite tents? What do you think that conveyed? Israelite life revolves around God. He is at the center. But again, this wasn't just any plain, ordinary tent. How is it described for us in Exodus 26. Well, first of all, any campers out there? We love to camp. What, what's it called when you camp in an RV? Glamping? We don't, we don't do that. Uh, we camp in tents, and Haley and I used to backpack a lot before we had kids up in Washington. We love spending time in tents, but this wasn't an ordinary tent. It was massive. It was a huge tent. Okay, so first, it's large. We learned from Exodus 26 that it's about 45 feet long. That's a big tent. 15 feet wide, and 15 feet tall. And it's surrounded by a courtyard 
And this is, again, part of the tabernacle. It's not the tent, but it's part of the overall structure that God's people were instructed to make. The courtyard in which the tabernacle is found is 150 feet long and about 75 feet wide. And this is good. Not only was it large, but it was comprised of highly valuable material, gold, silver, bronze, and richly embroidered fabrics. This speaks to the importance, the significance of the tent's occupant. He's royal, for this tent is fit for a king. He's kingly, right? Now, the structure itself, and I'm going to come back to this at the end, but the structure itself was this large wooden framework overlaid with multiple layers of fabric, these big curtains, we could call them. The inner layer was multicolored with embroidered cherubim, these angelic figures. The middle layer was composed of both goat and ram skins, and it provided protection and thickness. It was very practical. And then the outer layer, this is interesting, was composed of hides of sea cows, which essentially waterproofed the whole tent. Isn't that cool? It's waterproof. But again, as we'll see later, there is more to it than this, these layers, and we'll come back at the end. Next, it was aesthetically pleasing to the eyes. It's, it's beautiful, right? The curtains are blue, purple, and scarlet, and this speaks to the beauty and majesty of God. So it's, it's big, it's practical, it's beautiful, it's made of expensive materials because, again, it's fit for a king. It denoted royalty. Who's inside? King God, right? The king of the universe. The next thing I want to focus on, and I want to spend a little more time here, is it's holy. What is it? It's a holy tent. It's a holy tent. And this is indicated by the degrees of separation, right? So the, the outer courtyard, let me just walk through this. The outer courtyard, which we find in Exodus 27, was accessible to any and all Israelites. Okay, Israelites, didn't matter what your occupation was, you could be in the courtyard. Now, within the courtyard was the what? 45 by 15 by 15. The tabernacle, which included two rooms, the first being the holy place, which housed the table for bread and what else? The, the golden lampstand and the altar of incense. The holy place was barred by a large curtain, and it was only accessible to the priest. Only the priest could enter the holy place. And then you have the holy place, which is then separated from the most holy place. And only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And what was found there? The Ark of the Covenant, right? And only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And how often? One time a year. It's pretty significant. There was to be a veil or a curtain separating the most holy place from the holy place. And sewn into the veil were images of cherubim. And what were the cherubim? They were these angelic figures. And this is important. As we've seen already, <clears throat> I've addressed this already when we talked about the ark. <clears throat> cherubim, back in Genesis 3, were placed in front of the entrance to the Garden of Eden, barring the way, right? It was basically God's way of saying, keep out. They were protecting God's holy, sacred place. And so in front of the most holy place, on this veil of separation, you have cherubim. And what's the message? This place is holy. Keep out. 
And if you recall, and I think I looked at three passages a few weeks back, when we have visions of heaven in the Bible, what figures, what angelic figures are found in the throne room of God? The cherubim. So not only is the tabernacle holy, but it's holy because it's whose dwelling place? Again, cherubim are present where God is present. And so these cherubim were a sign that this is God's place, his dwelling place, and that's what made it holy. But again, the angels functioned as a visible warning against intruders. God's place was not to be entered into lightly. God's people could not come in on their own terms, but on whose terms? Let me get one more good clear. There it is. Sorry. In sum, let me just summarize quickly. The tabernacle is a large, portable tent. It's a portable temple, essentially. It's comprised of valuable materials suggesting it's what? There's a royal inhabitant. It's beautiful and it's holy, being that it's God's dwelling place. It's God's presence that makes it holy. Remember back in Exodus 3, the burning bush. What does God tell Moses? Hey, bro, take off your sandals. Why? Because you're standing on holy ground. What made it holy ground? It was God's presence. And I want to spend some time here. This is actually really cool. We've hinted at this already. I've talked about this a few times. But the tabernacle was made to intentionally mirror the Garden of Eden. It looked back to God's dwelling place with Adam and Eve. And this makes sense since Israel was to be viewed as a kind of Adam. Israel was God's covenant people. His son, as seen in Exodus 4, verse 22, it reads, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, the similarities between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden are numerous. And I could spend a lot more time on this, but we don't have that time, so I'm going to go quick. Both contained, so again, I'm, I'm making a comparison between what? The Garden of Eden and the tabernacle. The tabernacle was made to mirror, in a sense, to look back to the Garden of Eden. Both contained precious stones, onyx and gold. We see that in Genesis 2, 11 to 12. The golden lampstand, which resembles an almond tree in blossom, most likely symbolized the tree of life. Again, the cherubim embroidered in the veil, guarding the most holy place. They recall what? Genesis 3, and the fact that God placed cherubim in front of the entrance to the Garden of Eden, barring the way. And of course, if you go into the most holy place, what do you see on top of the Ark of the Covenant? What were fashioned to cherubim guarding God's sacred space. This is where God dwells. As God provided for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, so too He provided for Israel, as evidenced by the table for bread. This symbolized God's provision. I'm going to provide you. Of course, He provided manna, water from the walk, walk, the rock. Walk. Makes me want Chinese food now. The last thing I would say here, well, I'd say the third to last. The garden opened up toward the east. Did you realize that? The tabernacle opened up towards the the east as well. Uh, Again, there's other parallels. Let me just, can I I give you two more? These are really good. Two more parallels between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle. 
first, there's the intentional echo. This is so cool. Between Genesis 131, okay, so write that down, and Exodus 39:43. So Genesis 131, this is at the end of God's creation account. And God saw everything that he'd made. And behold, it was why It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then we get to Exodus 39, 43. And Moses saw all the work. And behold, they'd done it as the Lord had commanded. So they'd done it. Then Moses blessed them. It's a, it's a recognition of the quality of the work. First with Eden in the first creation and then with the tabernacle. And I think this is the clearest parallel. What happens after God creates? Very quickly in Genesis 3, there's a what? There's a fall. Adam and Eve disobey God. God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan comes in as a snake, tempts them. They give in. They disobey. We call that the fall. And what happens shortly after God's instruction for the tabernacle? There's a second kind of fall. We're going to look at it in a few weeks. It's the golden calf. Isn't that interesting? And not only did the tabernacle resemble Eden, the Garden of Eden, where heaven and earth met, but the tabernacle was made to resemble heaven itself. We see this in Exodus 26.30, where Moses is instructed to make what he sees while in God's glorious presence. And this is further supported by Hebrews 8.5 where the writer of Hebrews quotes Exodus 26.30. This is Hebrews 8.5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This was a copy of heaven. Again, the tabernacle was where heaven and earth met, where God met with his people. As Jeffrey Newhouse, he writes, Yahweh, and this is really interesting, Yahweh instructs Moses to build a tabernacle after the pattern shown him on Mount Sinai, the temple of a God. Both in Mesopotamia and Canaan was considered a replica of the God's heavenly dwelling place. That is what God is communicating. Therefore, the tabernacle functioned as the place where heaven and earth met. And the Lord had taken the initiative, per usual, to bring heaven down to his people. And of course, that's how our story ends. Amen? The heavenly city comes down. And we'll come back to this at the end. All right, so what's its purpose? What purpose did the tabernacle serve? We've talked about this already. Several practical purposes. First, It served as the place where God would visibly meet with his people. And in your notes, I I tried to distill this down in your handouts to like one or two words. So for number one, again, we're talking about what is its purpose. I just put divine dwelling place, if you're taking notes. It was his divine dwelling place, the place where he visibly ruled over his people as king through his word, right? By his word, through sacrifice. Second, it served as a place of atonement or reconciliation through sacrifice. So if you're taking notes, it was, second, a place of atonement. Salvation through sacrifice. Does that sound familiar? Is that an important theme in the Bible, salvation through sacrifice? Is this the first time we see it? No, of course not. Go back just a few chapters to what? What great event? Passover. 
What happened at Passover? A lamb was slain, its blood smeared over the doorpost so that the destroying angel would pass over God's people. It was a substitution. It was a sacrifice. And through that sacrifice, God's people were saved. They were spared God's wrath. And if you go back even further to Genesis 22, what happens in Genesis 22? God tells Abraham to go up on a mountain and to sacrifice his son Isaac, but at the very last minute, what does God provide? A ram in place of Isaac. Salvation through sacrifice. Third, it was meant to instill the tabernacle as a whole was meant to instill God's people with confidence. God is in our midst wherever we go, right? That's massive. After the second fall, after the golden calf, God threatens to remove his presence. And Moses is like, if you do that, please don't make us go any further because there's no point. If you don't go with us, we're dunsky. That's a Boston saying. I'm sorry. We're done. We're not going to make it. It was God's being with them and going before them that they truly rested. Amen? Knowing God is with us, he's before us, he's in our midst, so it gave confidence. That's number three. Number four, and I think this is the most significant, it diagnosed Israel's problem. Did you realize that? That the tabernacle diagnosed Israel's problem, but it also pointed to the solution. So in your notes, diagnosis and solution. I think this is the most relevant point, the one we're going to spend the majority of our time. Let's go back. All right, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. What do we notice? There's no way in. Anybody try to get back to the Garden recently? Anybody born in the Garden? No. We, we were all kicked out when Adam was, right? There's no going back. Well, now there is. But before Christ, I mean, we, we, we couldn't get back in. Why? What's in front of the entrance? What did God intentionally and strategically place in front of the entrance to the Garden of Eden? Cherubim. Barring the way with a sword. I'm not going to take on a cherubim. No, no, sir. But here's what's interesting. The tabernacle, on the other hand, points to the most holy place. It, in fact, leads to it, right? It's, there's the entrance that's open on the east, and then you go into the courtyard, and then... It's, it's significant. What do you find first? There's an altar for sacrificing. And then you have the tabernacle itself. And you have the holy place. And then you have the most holy place. So all signs point in. But again, not too fast, not so fast. Like Eden, there are cherubim blocking the way. The ones embroidered on the veil. And of course the ones on the Ark of the Covenant. Which declare, keep out! Keep out! It's dangerous for you. Not just anyone could waltz into the most holy place. To do so would be to invite what? Death. But why? Why? Because God is holy and we're not. It's true. God is holy and we're not. And yet, the Lord was providing a way. Through sacrifice, through substitution, through the shedding of blood. Atonement or reconciliation was provided. And yet, again, the temporary provision of the sacrificial system was not meant to last because it's what? It's temporary. Pointing to something much greater. 
The solution was reflected in the design itself of the tabernacle and its furnishings. First, upon entering the courtyard, one would encounter the altar, the place of sacrifice, which was necessary for God to dwell with his people. And then again, we have the tabernacle itself. The the separation and the solution are both conveyed via different layers for covering the tent. There's multiple layers that cover the tent. And as I said at the beginning, we're going to come back to this. This is intentional. The inner layer, okay, again, it's this large wooden framework, and what goes over it? Material. But different kinds of material, different colored material. Why all these layers? Well, again, we've talked about the thickness and the protection, even you know, the waterproofing of it, but there's more to it than that. The inner layer was blue, representing the heavens, God's dwelling place, God's goal for his people to be with him. Okay? But the second layer was composed of what? Goat skins. Goat skins to represent God's covering, the covering he provided to cover the shame of Adam and Eve in the garden. That's Genesis 3.21. The third layer was ram skins dyed red to represent the sacrifices and the blood required to provide a covering for sin. You see, the tabernacle was a visible reminder of Israel's problem and God's promised solution. God means to rule over his people as king by his word through what? Through sacrifice. But we got to remember, the tabernacle, thankfully, wasn't the long-term solution itself. Amen? (laughs) It's not. I mean, are we sacrificing animals today? I hope not. Number three, what does it teach us about God, the tabernacle? So what is it? What's its purpose? Again, if you were going to distill the purpose down, it's a reminder. It's a reminder of God's provision of a substitute, a sacrifice in order for his people to dwell with him. God wants to dwell with his people, but he's a just God. Sin has to be dealt with. And again, the tabernacle is a constant reminder of that. But it points to something greater, a once and for all sacrifice. Number three, what does it teach us about God? Now, don't be surprised here or worse, bored by the repetition. The tabernacle and the furnishings we've already looked at they often say the same things about God, but don't we need reminders, church? I do. We need these reminders. Why? Because we're naturally forgetful. And when we forget, bad things happen, don't they? All right, so what does the tabernacle teach us about God? This is really important. Number one, A, God is holy. God is holy. This is seen through the numerous layers of separation and the limitations placed upon the tabernacle. This was for their protection. God is holy. God is holy. And if his holiness is not regarded, what's going to happen to God's people? They're going to be struck down. We're going to see that. B, God takes the initiative. Oh, God takes the initiative. God rescues. God speaks. God instructs. God comes down. Who who is the primary actor in Scripture, in history? 
Who's the Bible about? God. From Genesis to Revelation, he's the one creating, he's the one speaking, he's the one rescuing, he's the one that takes initiative. He's the one providing, protecting, and pursuing his people. Praise God. Because we would not pursue him, would we? I wouldn't. I can't. See, guys, we've said this multiple times over the past four weeks, and I hope this never gets old or dull or boring. God desires fellowship with his people. Amen? He desires that. He dwells among his people. And again, this is obvious from the intentional parallels between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle. It was a reminder, the, the tabernacle was a reminder of what had been lost through the fall. And yet, it was at the same time a declaration of God's goodness and grace to provide a way for humanity to come back to him. The tabernacle was God's pledge. It was his promise that a return to life in the garden was not only possible but planned. Amen? It wasn't just possible. The tabernacle didn't just say, hey, this is possible, but it's planned. Life in the garden is planned. It's my will. D, God provides a way for fellowship with his people. God didn't just say, hey, my plan is to be with you, but it's up for you to figure out how to make that happen. If that were the case, would any of us have hope? Of course not. No, he reveals his plan to be with his people and then makes provisions, not only a place, but sacrifices to enable God's people to be near him. What a good God we serve. Amen? The tabernacle and its furnishings revealed God's plan for his people. God means to rule over his people as king by his word through sacrifice for the purpose of fellowship. And finally, the last question. How does the tabernacle point to Jesus in the gospel? Oh, I mean, this is always the climax of the sermon. This is always the crescendo. This is, this is the buildup, and, and now we're here. This is what I'm most excited about, and I hope you are as well. How does this tent, this portable temple with all its colors and all its worth and all its beauty, but again, all its limitations, point to Jesus and what he came to do through his life, death, and resurrection? I hope that question is just hanging in the air and you're trying to grab it right now the answer you you desire it well let's go hey <laughs> here it is the lord comes down how does it point to jesus in the gospel the lord comes down hey that's essentially what we're seeing with the tabernacle the lord takes the initiative to dwell among his people in fact that's how the book of exodus ends right i mean exodus 40 34 to 35. I hate to get ahead of myself, but let's go to the end. The end of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. That's what it means, right? Mishpan. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, this theme of God coming down. Does this sound familiar? God coming down. Huh. Did you do that again? I forget. No, I don't. Does this sound familiar? God coming down? It should. 
It should. I bet the kids know. I know they do. This theme of God coming down, the Lord coming down, can be used to trace the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. God comes down. God initiates this pattern in numerous places. I want to just look at three. We could have looked at 300. First, in the book of Exodus, let's start there because that's where we're at. In the book of Exodus, we see God coming down to dwell in the midst of his people in the tabernacle. Obvious, right? I mean, who came down? Who took the initiative? Who came and fought for their people? Who came to give instruction? Who came to reveal themselves? God did. God came down to dwell amongst his people. Now, before moving on to number two, the second thing, I want us to, this is so good, okay? This is so helpful. Oh, you know, the driving impetus of Scripture, what moves the story forward is promise and fulfillment. Amen? Promise and fulfillment. God makes promises and he fulfills them. And because of that, we say, God, you are faithful. Now check out this. This is Isaiah 64.1. I wonder if you've ever seen this before. Isaiah 64.1. Isaiah cries out prophetically on behalf of God's people, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God, come down and save your people. Come down and dwell amongst your people. That is his prayer. That is his cry. Isaiah, the prophet, cries out to God in prayer. Asking God to literally open the heavens and come down and rescue and be with his people. So keep that in mind. The second place where we see this theme, first is the Exodus. God comes down to tabernacle amongst his people. The second place is the incarnation of the Son of God. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, leaves heaven. He takes the initiative and he comes down to save us. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and, the Greek here, tabernacled among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Alright, so what was that? Isaiah 64. Rend the heavens. Come down. Come down and save us. Come down and be with us. Check this out. Mark 1. This is at the baptism of Jesus. Mark 1, 9 and 10. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Here we see Isaiah's prayer answered, Lord, rend the heaven. It's the Greek word schizomai, where we get the word schism, right? A tear, a division. Divide the sky, open it up, come down, and at Jesus' baptism, what happens? The sky is open, and the Spirit comes down. Oh! And now, we, the church, those who trust in Jesus, are the tabernacle. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? God has made His home in us, church. And part of our vocation as Christians is to make the invisible God visible through our relationships in the church, namely in our love for one another. That's 1 John 4.12. Alright, so again, this theme, Lord come down, 
We saw it where? Exodus. We saw it in the Gospels with Jesus, right? The incarnation, Jesus, the Son of God, leaving heaven, coming down to save us through his life, death, and resurrection. And all God's people said, Amen. But aren't we awaiting a, another visit? Third, this theme of the Lord coming down is seen at the end of our story in Revelation 21. Revelation 21.10, and he carried me away. This is John, the beloved disciple, writing, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The Lord comes down to dwell with his people. That's how our story ends. The Lord comes down, he brings down the heavenly city, and we get to be with him forever, amen? Oh, man. In order to better understand this, let's examine another theme that appears from Genesis to Revelation. B, God creates, God conquers, God dwells in fellowship with his people. I want to look at Genesis, Exodus, the Gospels, and Revelation quickly. God creates, God conquers, God dwells. God creates, God conquers, God dwells. We see that consistently in Scripture. God creates. What does he do next? Conquers. He dwells. In Genesis 1 and 2, these are the opening chapters of the Bible, God conquers the disorder, right? The earth was formless and without void. So God conquers the disorder, bringing order and beauty to his world, making it a habitable place for his image bearers, Adam and Eve. And then God dwells with them in his place of provision, which is the Garden of Eden. God creates, God conquers, God dwells. And then in the Exodus, oh, I mean, come on, we just talked about this. After defeating who? Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. God creates his new people, his covenant people, Israel. And he provides them with a place, a tabernacle. And he's leading them towards a more permanent place, the land of promise, where there's going to be a permanent structure, a temple. God creates, he conquers, and he dwells. And then, of course, we come to the Gospels. And the Gospels, after defeating the enemies of sin, death, and Satan through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in his church. He builds his tabernacle, the church, and means to rule over them by his what? By his word. Now we are the tabernacle of God. God dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit. And then we go to the end of our story, Revelation 21. And there's a new creation. God creates. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. God's enemies are swallowed up. Sin, death, and evil are swallowed up. They're no mas. And the Lord is found dwelling with his people in his heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And there we will see the Lord face to face. Now, one more interesting observation. This is really, really cool. In Genesis 2-2, where? Genesis 2-2. At the end of the creation account, what do we read? What do we see in Genesis 2-2? And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he'd done. Everybody say finished. He finished it. Okay, okay so finishes the word. And then in Exodus 40-33, once the tabernacle is complete, we read. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses, same verb, finished the work 
finished. And then, in John 19.30, on the cross, as Jesus is about to die for our sins, what does he say? It's finished. Oh, man. In Genesis, we have God's work of creation. In Exodus, we see his work of recreation. And at the end of the Gospel of John, we see God's work of new creation. Jesus is the greater Moses who made a way for sinners like us to dwell with God by giving his life for us. And one day, everybody say one day. I hope you long for this day. I hope you wake up thinking about this day and go to bed thinking about this day. One day, those who trust in Jesus will enjoy God's new creation forever. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, to be in Christ now is to be new creation. How do we know? How do we know that the tabernacle, and again, the tabernacle is wonderful, right? I mean, we see God's grace in the tabernacle, God dwelling amongst his people. But how do we know that the tabernacle is not God's final plan, but rather that it points to something greater? What is there in the tabernacle that screams, keep out? It's a curtain. And that's see. How does the tabernacle point to Christ in the gospel? See, the curtain is torn. Mark 15. The gospel of Mark 15. We're almost done. 37 to 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, I want to compare Mark 1 to Mark 15. This, I bet you've never thought of this. I don't think I had until I was studying this week. Mark's gospel begins and ends with a tear. Did you realize that? Mark's gospel begins and ends with a tear, a schism. Now, when we think of schism, we, we tend to think, that's not good, like a church split. But this schism, ironically, brings about eternal reconciliation between sinners and a holy God. We could argue, now check this out, we could argue that the cosmic tear at Jesus' baptism was a sign of the temple tear Jesus had come to accomplish. The Lord came down to make a way to be with us in fellowship through sacrifice. Jesus' death renders the sacrificial system superfluous, no longer needed. He's the once and for all sacrifice making an eternal way into God's presence. We can know God, and we can be with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I want to ask this question, though. What have you done with Jesus? What have you done with this way maker? What have you done with this king who stepped off his throne and died for sinners like us so that we could have peace with God? Trust him. Follow him. He is worthy. Amen? Church, let me speak to you. As spirit-filled believers, we are called to incarnate the Son of God through our love for one another, through our unity. That's 1 John 4.12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. God means, God means to point the way home, the way to Himself through His what? Through His church. God's spirit-filled People, his spirit-filled church is meant to point people to Christ, the way, 
through both gospel proclamation and faithful gospel living. Let me give you three practice steps, and I'm going to pray. What do we do with this good news? What do we do with the tabernacle as believers today? Three R's, rejoice, rest, and report. I hope, like me, you can rejoice in what God is showing us in his word. Isn't it good? We can rejoice in what God is showing us here. And we know that it points to Christ. And on this side of the cross, the empty tomb, we know it's been fulfilled. So we can rejoice. And we can rest in these glorious truths and what they mean for us today. We can rejoice and rest in God's character. God is good. He's faithful. He makes promises and he fulfills them. And finally, report. Report this good news to others. The wonderful news that God has made a way for sinners through his son, allowing us to be reconciled, brought back into fellowship with God by trusting in Jesus. You know, we can think of events in history because of which the world is now different. What are some of those events? I would say the invention of the printing press. That was a game changer. I wish I would have done that. I would say the Protestant Reformation. I would say the signing of the Declaration of Independence, even the internet. But nothing compares to what? That one event because of which everything is now different, the cross of Jesus Christ. Because of it, we can now relate to God differently. How we relate to God has been forever changed. As Tim Chester notes, Jesus died. The architecture of the tabernacle was radically rearranged. The way home to God is open. So trust in Jesus and enjoy fellowship with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Enjoy that peace. You can have that peace by trusting in Jesus. And if you have that peace, make it known to others. Tell them the good news that a way has been opened for sinners like us to be brought back into fellowship with God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are in awe. Of your goodness and your grace. We thank you for the Old Testament. We thank you for what it teaches us about you, what it teaches us about humanity, and what it teaches us about Jesus and his coming, the gospel. Father, I pray that in response to your word, we would be in awe and that we would rejoice and rest and report the good news that we've heard today for your glory and the good of others and our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.